takes me back to my old Southern Baptist days. Sunday evening service in the Southern Baptist Church. Last spring, we taught a class in our Bible school in the book of Proverbs. And there in that class, of course, we studied the book of Proverbs and what God has to say about wisdom, where it can be found, the importance of it to our lives. We noted there in the class that God has placed his wisdom close at hand for those who will be diligent to search it out. In fact, he's even baked it into the creation such that the writer can say in Proverbs chapter 6 and in verse 6 that we can go to a bug, we can go to the ant, and we can observe her ways and be wise. God's creation reveals his wisdom for those who will be diligent to search it out. But God's Word reveals even more, even more detailed, more specific, His wisdom for His people. Paul writes for us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Of course, when Paul wrote that, he was referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament was still uh, under construction, as it were. And so when he talks about all Scripture, he, in his mind, was thinking primarily of the Old Testament at that time. One person commenting on this, these two verses in 2 Timothy said that it is true all Scripture is inspired, but not all Scripture is equally inspiring. That is, that there are certainly parts of the Old Testament that are a little difficult for us, particularly because we are separated by so many thousands of years and cultural differences. Well, we arrive this morning, and you can open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 16. We arrive here in the final chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, page 1139, if you're using a pew Bible. We arrive here at the 16th chapter and we're going to be looking uh, lord willing at verses 1 through 16 some of you have read ahead as we had been advised to do here a month or so ago and you've read these first 16 verses and you thought to yourself well that was interesting what in the world is he going to do with that and when i first read it i thought to myself well that was interesting What in the world am I going to do with that? But believing that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, I decided to take a closer look, a longer look. And just as we began to do that and to think about this list of names and to trace a few of them down, all of a sudden things began to to unfold for me. And... I came away very excited from my study here in the first 16 verses of chapter 16. And so this morning, I just want to share some of the fruit of that study with you as we look at verses 1 through 16. And there we'll find three lessons from the early church, three lessons that we can draw out of this text from the early church that should stimulate our thinking about life and ministry. So as we contemplate these names and what Paul has to say about these people that someday we are going to meet in heaven. That'll be fun now, won't it? We go around heaven and we can, um, we can introduce ourselves to these people. But as we just reflect on their life and what Paul has to say about them, and, and for many of them, this is the only place their name appears in the Word of God. So what we know about them, we know only from what we read right here. But as we do that, there are some lessons for us that I think will be exceedingly helpful. So let's begin by just reading the text together. You follow along as I read, please. Romans chapter 16 and beginning in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at St. that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter She may have need of you, for she herself also has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet 
Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Eponius, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia and Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Man, all those names, huh? you imagine trying to call those? Ah, that's, another, that's another sermon. Okay. It's really interesting as we work through this text together. There are three lessons, I think, that we can draw out of this. The first one, and they're on the back of your bulletin for you. The first one is really quite simple, and that is that the church was a community. Simple lesson, just by observing this text, and that is that the church was a community really struck me as I was reading through this over and over again and observing the things that Paul had to say about these people, the various descriptions that he applied to the names on this text. Just beginning in verse 1, he talks about Phoebe. He calls her our sister. Our sister. It's a a term of of endearment, a term of, of familial love. There's a closeness that Paul has with this woman. Down in verse 3, he talks about Prisca and Aquila as my fellow workers. That appears again down in verse 9. Urbanus is also, Paul says, you see it there, a fellow worker. So the idea of working together, they're, they're involved in something together here. And, of course, we know that is the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples. It's also interesting to me the number of times he talks about someone as His beloved, his beloved over in verse five. He says, greet Eponidas, my beloved. Down to verse eight, greet Ampliatus, my beloved. Over to verse nine, Stachys, my beloved. Down to verse 12, you see it again. Greet Persis, the beloved. So over and over again, he speaks of these people and he says they're very close to his heart. They are beloved of the Apostle Paul. So these, these terms of closeness, these terms of familiarity, these, these terms of, of affection, really, for these people all communicate, as we think about it, a closeness, a community that the Apostle Paul has and feels with these people. Beyond that, just looking at the verse 16, where he closes this section out, and he says, greet one another, look, with a holy kiss, he says. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Beyond that, all the churches of Christ greet you. The holy kiss, it was a, it was a cultural 
way of greeting someone, not just anyone, but someone to whom you were close. It would be a, a kiss to the forehead or, or to the beard or the cheek. And it was practiced in the ancient world, and, and it was particularly practiced among those who were friends, those who were close with one another. They would kiss one another on the cheek. And I was thinking about this. Uh, the number of people who would have been ostracized from their families as they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they would have needed a new family. The old family would have been wanting nothing to do with them. So they would have come into this new family and then they would have shown the kind of affection that family members show to one another and a kiss on the cheek or on the beard would be a way to do that. The holy kiss. Now, culturally, we don't, we don't do that. But we hug, so perhaps the holy hug we could substitute here in our culture as a way to express the, the, the familiar, the family, the community relationship that we have one with another. As people are part of the body here, and, and maybe for them they've been cut off from affection in their own family because of their stand for Christ. And, and so here in the body, we become their family, we become their brothers, their sisters, and a hug is a meaningful way to express that kind of affection one for another. So there's community going on here as we take a look at this. There's something else interesting going on, and, and that is as we investigate the list of names that the Apostle Paul gives us here, we find out that they are drawn from all cross-section of life. They come from all aspects of life. There are Jews and Gentiles in this list. There are slaves and free in this list. There are men and there are women. There are high-born and there are low-born in this list. And so from every segment of society, they are brought together into a community. And Paul speaks of that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He speaks of the fact that in Christ Jesus, these social barriers have been dropped. And we are now one before God in Christ without any priority one over another. So there's that community aspect drawn from every part of society. They're united together here by the indwelling Spirit of God. Now there is a sense, clearly, and anyone who's traveled recognizes this, there is a sense in which all Christians everywhere have a certain fellowship with one another. You travel to another part of the country, you travel to another part of the world, you meet a believer there, and it, and it doesn't take very much before you have a relationship with that person and you begin to share things back and forth. It, it definitely, you can, you can sense there a certain oneness that you have in the Spirit of God. No question. But generally speaking, for the New Testament, when it, it talks about community, it talks about the body of Christ, it's talking about a local church. It is primarily communicating a message about a local church and the closeness that exists within a local body. It is the local church. It is this local church that is the place of Christian community. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons why membership is so significant. Because when we take that formal step of membership, what we're saying to everyone else is we want to be part of this community. We want to enter in to this community. We want to be loved as part of this community. We want to be, have the elders looking over our souls as part of this community. We want to serve you as part of this community. Now, community is a difficult concept for us. It's hard for us to get our, get our arms around certainly the community of the first century. I think part of it is because we don't share that culture. It's not the culture that we have grown up in. We have grown up in a more independent culture. I think another reason why community is, is difficult for us is because we are not part of a despised minority, at least not yet. There's a certain sense for, for these people to commit to Jesus Christ was to be ostracized from all the rest of the world. And so they became a despised minority, and that has a way of cementing relationships together. They were very much together in all of this. I think there's something else going on here, too, though, for us in our difficulty of sensing the community of the first century. And that is that we tend to see our coming together here as to meet God individually. 
We come here to meet God. We come here to worship God. And it's, and it's me and it's God. And, and it's kind of this vertical thing going on. And there's a, there's a certain horizontal aspect to it, but it's not our primary focus. Our focus here is to meet God. And so to one degree and, or another, and we probably would never voice it this way, I don't need you. I can meet God here without you is a bit of the mindset that we bring with us on a Sunday morning. And, and that is so foreign to the New Testament, so foreign to the concept of community is developed in the New Testament. They would see the gathering of the saints together as, as how we meet God together in the fellowship of his people. It is to worship the Most High God, to be sure, but it is done in the context of his people. Seeing our relationship with God as being primarily vertical without a a strong horizontal component to it, it it can create within us the idea that that we're all alone. That it's about God and me and, and that what I do or don't do has little effect upon the church. It really doesn't impact my brother and sister in Christ that much how I conduct myself. But the New Testament presents such a different picture of that. Such a different picture. It's it's because of of a close relationship in community that is a theological reality of the New Testament that the New Testament continually points us to the fact that our sin affects other people. This is a big concept. That when we sin, it's not just that we have sinned against God, but we have sinned against our brothers and sisters as well, even if they don't know about it. And we we have diminished the community. We've diminished the community. We've weakened the bonds of the community. Let me see if I can develop this just for a couple of minutes with you here. Turn to the right over to Galatians chapter 5, page 1168. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. Paul writes there, he says, but, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. These are community sins. These are community sins. The participation in in these kinds of unlawful behaviors have a direct impact upon a local community of believers. It it diminishes the body. And so recognizing that reality, it it takes us to a whole new place, a whole new place. It, It opens us up to one another to say, you know what? I need you in my life. And I need you to know that I'm struggling in a certain place because it's just not between me and God and and I can keep it all a lid on it. And I come to church on Sunday morning and I have my plastic mask of holiness on and, and you think my life is great and I'm dying on the inside. And so are you. And we say to one another, well, how are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm doing fine, doing fine. My marriage is a disaster. I'm doing fine. Having real problems with one of my children. I'm doing fine. I'm really struggling with a certain area of sin where I just keep falling and falling. But I'm doing fine. And that's our approach to each other. And everybody's doing fine. And we're dying. 
We're dying on the inside. And, and see, when we, when we adopt that attitude, it's just me and God and, and the community matters very little, then what happens is, is we all pull back from one another and we have a kind of a censorious spirit and, and no one will be the first person to admit they're struggling because they're positive that nobody else is struggling. And if they ever admit they're struggling, everybody else will point the long finger at them and say, repent and get holy like we are. And that's the problem. That's the problem when community is diminished. When we fail to recognize that we're together in this and that we need each other. I need you and you need me. And we need to be involved in one another's lives. There's a community. I mean, how does the Apostle Paul know all of this stuff about these people? Go back to Romans 16. Think about that. He speaks about these people and and he says things about them that mean he is intimately familiar with them. He knows them. He knows their lives. Church was a community. That's the first and most simple lesson that we can walk away with from this section of greetings. The church was a community. Beyond that, the church moved around. That's my second observation. Very simple lesson. The church moved, or people rather, moved around. People moved around. I'm struck. I'm struck by the number of personal greetings. Paul had never been to Rome. He's never been. He he wants to come. He's writing this letter in advance of his trip there. He's never been to Rome. And yet, look at the number of people that he can speak on a very personal level to. How? How is that possible? How does he know so many people by name? And how does he he know so much about their lives and their ministries? How? Well, the answer is that they have crossed paths before. It has to be that. It's as simple as that. This list of names are people who have crossed his path, people in whose lives he has had significant influence, and they in his. They had a great influence on him, some of them. Look at verse 4. Prisca and Aquila, Aquila, who for my life risked their own necks. For my life they risked their own necks. Verse 17. Andronicus and Junius. My fellow prisoners, he says. My fellow prisoners. They were imprisoned with him. Verse 13. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. They are not related. This is not a statement about their blood. Paul and Rufus are not brothers. Okay, actually, Rufus' brother was named Alexander. His father was, was Simon of Cyrene. You remember him, Simon of Cyrene, right? He was the one who the Roman soldiers made carry the cross of Christ. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, we are told that Simon of Cyrene had two brothers, one by the name of Alexander, the other by the name of Rufus. Mark's gospel was written to the believers in Rome. They knew who Alexander and Rufus were. And so there's this man, Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. But, but Paul says here, the end of verse 13, his mother and mine. That, what he's saying is that somehow, in some way, the mother of Rufus, wife of Simon of Cyrene, had a ministry impact in Paul's life like unto being his mother. She had that kind of impact on him. She was an adopted mom for the Apostle Paul. They're very close with each other. Their lives have been intertwined. Through the years, we've had hundreds of people, hundreds of people come and go at Foothill Bible Church. Hundreds. I sat down several years ago and and just took two directories, 10 years apart, and 
took all the names that are in the first directory and then took all the names in the second directory and then did a rough accounting of those who had come and gone between the directories. And there would be more than a thousand people if, all, if everyone had stayed. Hundreds and hundreds of people have come and gone, come and gone. Some have come for illegitimate reasons and left for illegitimate reasons. But many who have left have left because of the circumstances of life. Job transfer. Family responsibilities. Get married. Move away. Educational choices. Whatever it is. Business requirements. People come and people go. It was that way in the first century too. It was exactly that way in the, in the first century. People come and people go. We don't have somebody forever, but as long as we have them, we, we want to be a blessing to them and, and they to, to us. People moved around in the first century just like they move around today. Nothing's different. Now, by the way, we know this to be an absolute fact by looking in verse 3 at Prisca and Aquila. Now, you might well know them by the name Priscilla and Aquila. But Paul refers to them as Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is the more formal way of, of, of her name, giving her name. And Priscilla is the diminutive. It is the more informal way. It would be like David and Dave. So Priscilla is like Dave and Prisca is like David. It's the more formal way to speak her name. And by the way, to the Apostle Paul, she's always Prisca. And to Luke, she's always Priscilla. It's kind of interesting. Now, this couple shows up in the New Testament in a number of different places. They first show up over in Acts chapter 18. So turn to Acts chapter 18, page 1110. And let's be introduced to this couple. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It's around AD 51 at this point, historically. Luke writes, After these things he left Athens, that is, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius's edict was in AD 49 when he demanded all the Jews leave the imperial city because of riots. So they had to depart Rome. Paul came to them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers. They were tent makers. So evidently this couple... Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. Aquila had been born in Pontus. Pontus is northern Turkey, just south of the Black Sea. That was where he was born. He lived in Rome with his wife. They were evicted from Rome. They enter into the biblical stream of history here in Corinth. And that's where Paul meets them. Eighteen months later, they leave Corinth. And they move with Paul to Ephesus. You see it down in verse 18 and 19 of Acts chapter 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sencrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Sencrea is the name of the seaport, the southern seaport of the city of Corinth. It's about seven miles southeast of Corinth. It was their major seaport on the southeast side. In Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they came to Ephesus, verse 19, and he left them there. He left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. He left them there. While they were in Ephesus, they had a very instrumental role in discipling a powerful young preacher by the name of Apollos. You can look down a little bit further, verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the Scriptures. 
This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. That is, his theology was undeveloped. It wasn't fully formed. And he began to speak out boldly, verse 26, in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They took this man aside, a very powerful preacher. They took him off to the side, not to embarrass him publicly. And they opened the scriptures with him and they, they informed him. They filled out the holes in his theology so that his preaching would be that much more powerful and that much more used of God. Now, back to Romans chapter 16. We find them here in Rome. Verse 3, right? Greet Prisca and Aquila. It's now A.D. 56, approximately, when Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome. So this couple have lived for sure in Italy, Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. In not that many years. Not very many years. The obvious conclusion is they get around. They get around. And, by the way, it says in verse 5, Greet the church that is in their house. If you were to trace that, you would note that there was always a house church wherever these people were. Now, people speculate. We don't know. They may be just successful business people who had various branches or branch offices of the tent-making business. And so they moved from city to city to check out their various offices. That's possible. More likely, they were moving where business was good, and as they moved, they took the gospel with them and established churches to meet in their homes, wherever they went. Probably more likely. So people moved around. That's, that's my whole point. People move around. Now, last month, Colin Marshall was out here with us. He spent more than a week with us, and, and he really challenged us and encouraged us to think again about the Great Commission. And to think about the Great Commission as not just making converts, but being disciples who make disciples. He really emphasized that, and it was a very simple but a very powerful message. One that we really need to get our arms around and come to grips with as a fellowship. And he had a little, a nice little helpful expression that he used in terms of thinking of ourselves and of other people in the discipleship process. You remember what it was? It was called moving people to the right. Do you remember that? He talked about moving people to the right. And, and simply put, what he challenged us to do was to think about ourselves and think about other people. And parents, I'll extend this to you. Think about your children this way as on a path to maturity in Christ. And think about where am I and where are they on the path? And where do the, what's the next thing that needs to happen as they move along the path towards maturity? And that all of the issues of life, all of the setbacks and all of the hardships and all the struggles are just part of the path to maturity in Jesus Christ. They're part of the process of moving to the right. Paul saw his ministry this way. Over in Colossians chapter 1, page 1179. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 28, Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. And for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. Which mightily works in me. Paul says, my ministry is about bringing every man to the right, moving everyone along the path of discipleship, growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ. We get a very similar concept. We won't turn there. You get a very similar concept in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. You can check it on your own time. It's the same basic idea. 
moving to the right, growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ, maturing as a disciple and helping others to mature along the way. When we get a hold of that idea and we begin to process that, what we recognize is that every person here will not arrive at the finish line. Because not every person here will be here for their whole lives. People come and people go. But while you are here, we want to invest in helping you to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. While you are here, we want you to invest in us to help us grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So however long the Lord has you here, be here, plug in, get involved and grow in Christ and help others to grow, too. See, that's the big idea. Let's help one another along the journey because we don't know how long we'll be here. Now, this requires us to see the work of Christ as bigger than Foothill Bible Church. And that's a struggle. That's a struggle. The struggle comes in investing in someone who you know is going to leave. Why would I invest time, money, energy in someone who I know is leaving in a couple of years. But when I ask that question that way, what I'm what I'm revealing is that I have a very, very narrow view of the work of Jesus Christ. That it's all about me. It's all about meeting our needs, my needs. So I only want to work with people who are going to promise me on a blood oath that they'll be here for another 25 years, which in and of itself is foolish, isn't it? No man knows tomorrow. We don't know. But we work for today. So it's more than building Foothill Bible Church. It's developing disciples. It's moving people to the right. By the way, it's core value number five. Developing disciples to reach the nations. We've talked a lot about it for almost six years. But it's elusive and it it continues to slide through our fingers. And so here in Romans chapter 16, when I'm reading about all of these names, what I'm walking away with is, is saying, you know what? Paul invested in these people. These were people that he personally invested with somewhere in his ministry. And now they are in Rome. They had great impact in his life some of them at least, and he has had great impact in theirs. And the work of Christ goes on. People move around. Simple lesson. People move around. That leads us to the third lesson. The third lesson. Paul's list of personal greetings here contains 24 names and two unnamed individuals. So 24 by name and two unnamed, 26 individuals total. Nine of them are women. Nine of them are women. And so that leads me to the third lesson, and that is that women played an active role. Women played an active role. Two of the women in this list played a very prominent role in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. They are Phoebe in verse 1 and Prisca in verse 3. Phoebe and Prisca. So let's just set them aside for a moment. We'll come back to them. There are four other women named in this list to which Paul makes a very interesting statement. He says that each and every one of them, the first is verse 6, Mary has worked hard for you, he says. Then down in verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Verse 12, greet Persis, the beloved who has worked hard in the Lord. They are all women. Tryphena and Tryphosa, probably sisters. The root word behind their name means delicate or dainty. So they were the dainty girls, the delicate girls, 
who worked hard for the Lord. The same Greek verb stands behind all four of these names. Kapiao, it means to work to exhaustion. It means to labor so hard that you grow weary in the process. So the dainty sisters work to the point of exhaustion in the work of the Lord. Mary, which, by the way, is a Jewish name, the same thing, worked hard for you. Persis, uh, her name probably comes from Persia. She was probably a slave, a slave girl captured from that region given that name, she too has worked hard in the Lord. So it's just fascinating to me. And by the way, it doesn't say that about any of the men. I just have to tell you that, guys. I was looking in vain for that. Paul doesn't say that about any of the men. He specifically says it about four women. Kapiao, they, they work to the point of exhaustion in the work of the gospel. Now, let's take a look at this lady, Phoebe, verse 1. This is the only place she appears in the New Testament. This is it. Verses 1 and 2 is all we know about Phoebe. But from these verses, we can deduce some very significant things about who this woman was and her character, her ministry. This is a very, very special woman. Now, Culturally, historically, you need to understand this. Travel in the ancient world was a very dangerous thing. There were no Motel 6 where they keep the light on or whatever that thing is. There's no safe place to stay. And so you would stay with someone in their home and they would take responsibility to care for you. That was how you moved, particularly as a Christian in the first century. You would, you would move from church to church, home to home as you progressed throughout the empire in your travel. Now, right away, you can, you can see an immediate problem, and that is this person comes, they knock on my door, they tell me they're a Christian, I let them into my home, and they murder me in my sleep, right? Take the china. So there has to be some kind of way for you to know this stranger is really a Christian and is safe to take into your home. And so what they did was carry letters of commendation. They would have a letter of commendation. They'd knock on your door. They'd show you the letter of commendation. And if that letter of commendation came from someone you knew and trusted, then you would receive them into your home and you would care for them. Paul has provided a letter of commendation to this lady, Phoebe. You see it? Verse 1, chapter 16. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. Paul commends her to them. Beyond that, verse 2, he goes on and he says that they should help this woman in whatever matter she may have need of you. Middle of the verse. This is like Paul giving his American Express card to Phoebe and saying, here it is. This is the apostolic American Express card. Don't leave home without it and it'll get you what you need. It will provide lodging for you and in Rome, whyever this, for whatever reason this woman's here, and we can speculate a little bit on that in a minute. Whatever reason she's here, she's going to need help. You are to help her. You're to help her out. That's a pretty good commendation, by the way. Doesn't get much better than you get it from the Apostle Paul, right? Kind of opens doors. The gold card. Notice as well, verse 1, he, he describes you her as... Your sister, our sister. And then beyond that, he says, a servant of the church that is in Sancria. Servant. Diakonos in the Greek, we get the word deacon from this Greek word. Now, she has been a minister to many, it says, the end of the verse, and to Paul as well, the end of verse 2. She has really helped them out. Now, this word diakonos, it can mean deacon in the official sense of the word, like it's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8 or, or Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. But it can also mean in a general way a servant or a minister 
Simple as that. In fact, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 4, Paul says that the government is a diakonos, is a minister of God, a servant of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, he speaks of himself as a servant, a diakonos. So it has a general sense as well of just a servant of the body of God. NESB translates it here. Commend you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant. I think he is not saying she is a deacon. He is saying she is a servant. She is a minister within the church. One of the reasons I believe that to be true is because Paul doesn't refer to people by official titles. He refers to people by their their work or their faithfulness. As we read through this whole list, that's what he does, right? He talks about them as a fellow worker, a faithful worker, a hard worker. He doesn't give people a bunch of titles. He doesn't say this is the, you know, such and such, and this is such and such. He just he describes them. So I think that's what he's doing here is he's describing her. He's calling her a servant of the church, which is in Sincrea, right outside of Corinth. She's been a helper of many. See at the end of verse 2, she's been a helper of many. In secular Greek, this actually refers to a woman who would be a patroness or a benefactor. And I think that that gives us a little insight into this particular woman. She was evidently a woman of some means and some social standing. There in the seaport city of Sincrea, lots of people would come into the city. Lots of Christians would come by boat into the city and they would need help. They would need to know, where do I get my money exchanged without getting ripped off? Where do I find a place to sleep for the night? Where do I get a square meal? How do I find my way into the fellowship of the church? Can somebody help me with my papers? They're kind of messed up, my travel papers, and they need to be squared away. I've got to go stand before the magistrate, and I've got to get this legal matter resolved. I mean, all multitude of possible problems. This woman is there, and if it's true that she was a benefactress or she was a patroness, she would be there, she would put her wealth, she would put her social position, her standing on the line to help out many, many people. And that's what Paul seems to indicate. She's helping out Christian people all over the place. A servant of the church, minister of the church, aiding those who come in and out of the seaport city of Sincrea. Now there's one more observation that I can make about this lady. And when I started thinking about this one, I really got fired up. She's carrying the letter to the church at Rome. You realize that? She is carrying the letter, the epistle to the Romans. Think with me. Think with me. First century. No copy machines. And it's hard to believe. No copy machines. First century. No carbon paper. No carbon paper. Only, you know, half of you know what that is. No copy machines. No carbon paper. Think with me. Writing materials, very scarce, very expensive. First century. Exceedingly unlikely that Paul has a backup copy of the epistle to the Romans. Think with me. The Apostle Paul was very much aware when he was writing Scripture under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He knew it. The Apostle Paul knew as he dictated, and we'll find that out next week, as he dictated this letter to the church at Rome, he was actually speaking forth the very Word of God, the very oracles of the living God. And then they rolled it up in a scroll and he handed it to this woman and he said, take this to Rome. Take it to Rome. Beloved, you don't entrust the original manuscript of the Bible 
to somebody that you don't have the highest regard for. There's no plan B here. There is no plan B. If this woman loses this, she has lost part of the Word of God. Only your most trusted confidants could you assign to such a task. Wow. Phoebe. Some kind of lady. Some kind of lady. Verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Who for my life risked their own necks. To whom not only do I give thanks. But also all the churches of the Gentiles. They also greet the church that is in their house. Six times. Six times. This couple appears in scripture. Their names are listed. Four of the six. The wife is mentioned before the husband. Commentators have noted that since the beginning. And there are a number of speculative possibilities for why that to be so. It's uncommon. Perhaps she was of higher social standing than her husband and is thus listed first because of it. Perhaps she brought money into the marriage and is listed first because of that. Perhaps she has a more dominant personality than him. That's at least what one commentator said. (laughs) And she's listed first because of that. The answer is we don't know. We do not know why. But four times out of six, when the husband and wife ministry team is mentioned, she is mentioned first. Now, it is very interesting to me, verse 4, they risked their necks for his life. Risk your neck is, a, is just an expression, right, of putting your life on the line, of, of undergoing grave danger for the sake of someone else. Again, we don't know where, we don't know when, and we don't exactly know how. Although, possibly, it was during the riot in, in Ephesus that's listed for us in Acts 19. Maybe. But somehow this couple laid it all out on the line for the Apostle Paul. They're clearly energetic and talented people. They're very hospitable, verse 5. They have a a church meeting in their home. So they're hospitable kinds of people. They're theologically mature people, Acts 18, verse 26, right? They met with Apollos and they discipled him in the way until they filled in the gaps of his theology. And by the way, it wasn't Aquila just cooking, you know, making cookies and boiling tea water and Aquila doing all the work. Together, somehow the text indicates that they ministered to Apollos and they discipled him. They were theologically mature themselves and they were passing it on. They're very close to the heart of the Apostle Paul. My fellow workers, verse 3. My fellow workers. Now it's possible, verse 7, let's take a look at that. It's possible that there is a, a third ministry team mentioned here. Greet Andronicus and Junius. Probably your Bible has some kind of marginal note that tells you that it may be Junia feminine instead of Junius masculine. There is a fair amount of discussion in the technical commentaries about that. There are manuscript issues. So it may be two men, Andronicus and Junius, or it may be a husband and wife team, Andronicus and Junia. Junia was a common name. Junius was not a common name. They are Jewish, that much we're sure of. Paul says they're his kinsmen. Do you see it? My kinsmen. They are early converts. Verse 7, the end of the verse, who who also were in Christ before me. 
So they were early Jewish converts to Christianity. They also suffered for their their Christian faith because they were prisoners, he says. They were imprisoned for their faith. And they are, in verse 7, outstanding among the apostles. Outstanding among the apostles. Some people read this and they say, it's Junia, female. There you go. We have a, we have a female apostle. My answer to somebody is that you have read your theology into the text. You have not read that out of the text. The word apostle means messenger. Messenger. It's used that way in the New Testament. They were outstanding among the messengers. What does that mean? They were missionaries. That's what it means. They were outstanding missionaries in Christ before many, imprisoned for their work of the ministry. They were outstanding. People knew who they were. Now, as I was reading and thinking all, all week long on these things, this data that Paul records for us here about the involvement, significant involvement of women in ministry, and I was thinking about all of that and and thinking at the same time about the clear prohibition he gives in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 that a, a woman is not to, to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then, you know, it rolls right into chapter 3 where he talks about elders are to be the husband of one wife and they are, have to be apt to teach. Clearly in that context, there's no question about it that the role of the overseer, the role of the elder, the pastor, and further down the deacon is a male role in the church. That's not open to discussion. You have, to, you have to torture the Bible to see it any other way. But at the same time, it was clear that all the women weren't just at home, barefoot and pregnant, boiling water for tea. That they were actively involved. They were kapiao. They were, they were working to the point of exertion and exhaustion. The promulgation of the gospel. They were talented, they were powerful, and they were used of God. The process of us as a fellowship implementing trellis and vine principles, we need to keep these two realities in tension. The prohibitions that are clear in Scripture with regard to those ministry roles that are not permissible to a woman. And yet at the same time, we dare not deny legitimate ministry to the women of this congregation. We need to think it through. We need to work our way carefully through these things. And we must not let our culture dictate for us the answers to the questions. And by the way, there are two cultures going on. There is the culture of feminism, which the world has imbibed totally. And there is another culture sometimes that goes on inside conservative churches that it's a pendulum reaction to feminism. We need to make sure that we're not on either extreme. It will take wisdom. We need to be informed by the word of God. So what have we learned? What do we learn from this this list of names, this extended greeting? Well, we learn they're a community. They're a community of believers, and and we should be too. We learn that that people move around and and that all the ministry done here at Foothill is, is not for our own consumption. We learn that women played an active role, and, and brothers and sisters, if I can just say it this way, we're in this thing together. We are all in this thing together. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for this text in Romans. That which at first looks like just kind of dry ground. Closing down the letter and just a bunch of greetings and we kind of read over it, kind of flyover zone at first appearance. 
And yet, O oh Lord, it is Holy Scripture and, and there is profitable for us. And if we take the time to think about it and do a little investigative work with it, we, we can recognize there's some really powerful truths that are buried here. O oh Lord, may you enable us to learn the lessons that need to be learned from this text, to, to think seriously about these things. Our Father, to, uh, to allow us to, to shape ministry not after our culture, but after the Word of God. We are determined to obey the Bible, our Father. We are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we need your wisdom. We need your grace. We pray that you would enable us to think these things through. And we pray that you would grant us a spirit of graciousness with one another as we think these things through. Oh Lord, help us not to be threatened in our own comfort zones, but to allow our opinions and our conclusions and our presuppositions to be tested with the Word of God. For we know, oh Lord, that your blessing lies only there. Only as we do your work, your way, will you bless us. Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.